This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let me start here uh, with where we're going. Um, More protests in Toronto. It's a nice clear night downtown and the same old story. And I get why there was an escalation um, from the Israel Defense Forces. They freed two hostages. We told you about this on the show saving a 60-year-old and a 70-year-old and getting them back to their families. I mean, they've been in captivity for four months and change, uh, going all the way back to October 7th, but they are alive. Um, But uh, obviously, uh, some sources on the other side say, but 68 Palestinians were killed to free two people. There's going to be that gap, and and I don't know how we rectify it, by which Israel says we're going to save those hostages and defend ourselves by any means necessary. And then there's the proportionality argument of when does it become destruction for the sake of destruction? And we just can't seem to meet in the middle. And you can't find two people really completely aligned about all that's happening right now. But there was a protest last night uh, at the Israeli consulate, and I'm thinking, okay, within reason, that's the way that you do it. You go to the consulate. You don't go to people's houses As we said right from the get-go, you don't bang sticks on windows of employment places um, where somebody, uh, it might be a Jewish bakery or a Jewish-owned business or go to the Eden Center, go to the consulate. That's where you can send a message where the political decision makers are. But it didn't stop there. They went to Mount Sinai Hospital. This hospital was started in the city of Toronto because doctors of Jewish faith, men and women, didn't have a place to train or work post-World War II and for some extent during World War II and prior because of anti-Semitism. We're not going to hire Jews. That was the concept among hospitals. Like, think about that. That's only about 80 years ago. And I'm not going to tell you that's the only form of discrimination that anybody in the medical profession has ever suffered or even suffers right now. I gotcha. We're on the same page with that one. But yesterday, to go to a hospital and have a crowd chanting for intifada, against Jews outside what is a place where you go to get better, where you take your elderly uh, elderly parent, where you take your loved one, not knowing what the next step is to get them better, to take your child and get an important test for their heart, for their brain, for a broken leg, for anything. For those people to be in that hospital last night and hear the chaos, hear the commotion, and yes, eventually piece together the threats It's no good. Raghu Venagopal is a doctor, and he decided, I have to go to this protest, and I have to, or go to the scene of the protest, and make it clear that this is a no-go. This isn't about freedom assembly. This isn't about freedom of speech anymore, when on a Monday night at around 8 o'clock, you're going and letting everybody know that this Jewish hospital, and it is that, I mean, the messaging is not lost on anybody here, is being targeted by, in essence, a mob. Uh, Protesters have been on these uh, hallowed and sacred hospital grounds uh, to protest. And protesting in Canada is everyone's right. But um, according to laws of our land in Canada, you cannot protest in such a way to impede or intimidate access of healthcare workers or patients at a hospital. This is federal Bill C-3, which has been passed into law. And I've come here with one of my colleagues to witness and to counter protest any kind of protest in front of a hospital. Uh, Bill C-3 was passed in our Canadian Parliament 
uh, unanimously by all members of parliament that it is against federal criminal law to protest in front of hospitals, blocking access, impeding healthcare workers or patients. And I would ask that all Torontonians and all Canadians observe the decency to allow hospital workers and patients to access all hospitals, regardless of whether they have a Jewish or Catholic or any kind of identity, because these grounds are hallowed grounds. And um, I'm very pleased at this time that the grounds are quiet and that uh, indeed patients and staff can access the hospital. But we must never have a situation in Canada where people, regardless of their faith or regardless of their beliefs, cannot access health care. But they weren't quiet a couple hours earlier, and the footage is rather harrowing. And Vanagopal also called in a tweet on Mayor Olivia Chow, the Toronto police chief, Doug Ford, the premier of the province, and the prime minister of this country, Justin Trudeau, to condemn any protests on or around hospital facilities in our great country. They were easy to find in terms of during the pandemic. Anti-vaxxers harassing people going into hospitals, people that either felt that they shouldn't get a vaccination or didn't want anybody else to. We were very adamant about that. A lot of politicians yelled and screamed about that was an easy one. That was a layup. Where are they now? Where will the mayor of Toronto be this morning? There is no excuse and no explanation. To, and don't send a tweet out 8% of the populations on Twitter. Get in front of a microphone and camera this morning. If you want to be a leader and you want to run the city, and by the way, I will make this point, and you want to make sure that you're on side with the police, the police need to see you do this. Citizens need to see you do this and condemn what happened last night and say it isn't going to stop. And I know you say you can't direct the police, but you sure can say the police have my full support here to arrest anyone breaking the law. Speaking of leaders, Rishi Sunak is the uh, prime minister of the United Kingdom. And while he's under a lot of fire for a lot of other issues, I thought he got something right on Friday morning of last week when he didn't direct the police, but didn't note they've got his authority and approval to step up. Listen to what he says about giving tickets at a protest if you are wearing a face covering or a mask. It's very clear you're utilizing it to conceal your identity as he isn't going to stand for it anymore. Since the October 7th attacks in Israel, we've seen protests across our country almost every weekend. Many of these have been respectful, but there have also been far too many appalling examples of anti-Semitism, violent intimidation, and the glorification of terrorism. This must not stand. I've asked the police what powers they need to bring order to our streets. As a result, today, we are setting out measures that will ban fireworks and flares that intimidate communities and have put our police officers in hospital. Stop people from being able to climb on our sacred war memorials and stop people from covering their faces to conceal their identity and evade arrest. Those who abuse their freedom to protest undermine public safety and our democratic values and I will give police the powers they need to crack down on this intimidating and appalling behavior. I get why people are upset with the government of Israel. I get why people would love for Benjamin Netanyahu not to be leading Israel. Many Israelis feel this way. But I also get how cowardly this appears. And you are nothing but cowards if you're hiding your own identity for a protest you can't fully explain or be committed to. I can't name a protest in modern time, and I bet you can't either. 
for U.S. civil rights, women's marches, the ERA in the United States, the Vietnam War, um, fighting off against dictators in either Eastern Europe when the Berlin Wall was falling or the Middle East, Iraq against Saddam Hussein, Iran against the Ayatollah. I can't name a protest where people were wearing masks. Why? Because you're proud. Here, you're embarrassed, and you should be. Someone might recognize you. So this is the way. It's a $1,000 fine in the UK for covering your face at a protest. I mean, I'm sure you'd hate to get misrecognized as someone causing trouble, saying something discriminatory. There's not a single mask to be found at pro-Israeli rallies. Not a single one. Let me flip to John Stewart, who came back last night on The Daily Show, and we talked a lot about Joe Biden on Friday's show and his um, cognitive issues that were documented from a special counsel report about classified documents. What people like about John Stewart is he lets both sides have it, both barrels. And he did that with Joe Biden and Donald Trump last night. These two candidates, they are both similarly challenged. And it is not crazy to think that the oldest people in the history of the country to ever run for president might have some of these challenges. Now, Democrats will say that any criticism like this, especially of Biden, is unfair because you just don't know Biden like they know Biden. President Biden, who I've been around uh, numerous times just in this last year, is sharp. He's focused. He's bright. He is sharp intensely probing and detail-oriented and focused. This is a man who is sharp, who is on top of his game, who knows what's going on. He's smart. He's on his game. I was in almost every meeting with the president, and the president was in front of and on top of it all, coordinating and directing leaders who are in charge of America's national security, not to mention our allies around the globe. Did anyone film that? <laughs> because if you're... If you're telling us behind the scenes he is sharp and full of energy and on top of it and really in control and leading, you should film that. <laughs> that would be good to show to people instead of a TikTok. Of course, when it comes to Republicans, they've got a different strategy for their 77-year-old candidate. Well, first of all, Donald Trump is not an old man. He's an old man! <laughs> he is objectively an old man on a human scale. The Daily Show and Comedy Central last night. Uh, lots of good John Stewart stuff. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Six twenty-two. Okay, who's this? And and you're wondering. I don't necessarily know this artist. Some of you might. This is Morrissey, and uh, he's known. Uh, I think that's known as being known mononymously. If you only have one name, Sting, Madonna, Morrissey, all mononymously named. And uh, it is the anniversary, February thirteenth, two thousand, of my very first date. Uh, with my, why is this in brackets in the script? Current wife. What is that? <laughs> anyway, um, 24 years ago today and earlier in the week, I asked my wife, uh, uh, then Rachel Moore, to go to uh, this concert with me. I was holding uh, tickets for it. And uh, his songs are generally uniquely uh, depressing. They're sad. Uh, he has a song called Meat is Murder. And I'm like, okay, we'll put you down as undecided on the whole 
vegetarian thing, but whatever. Um, and so I go to uh, I go to that concert, and then we went out the next night as well on Valentine's Day. It's weird having an anniversary because we really downplay Valentine's Day. But 24 years ago tonight, I went on my first date with my wife. Sheba Siddiqui's our producer. Am I weird that I remember all those details? It's a first date. It's very unlikely for, especially for a man. What? I feel to remember. Well, I didn't think the sexism card would get played this early. It's romantic. I think it's romantic. But wait, why did you ask her out for the day before Valentine's Day? Because the concert was that night and I had tickets for it and I thought. And then did you, did you do anything the next day for Valentine's Day? Um, well, we went to a movie that night. Oh, I so I'm two not, dates I'm not in sure. a row. I didn't, I didn't bring flowers or chocolate or anything like that. And this was maintaining a busy work schedule. So I was out on a Sunday night while working a Monday uh, and a Monday uh, working a Tuesday. But uh, and then and then we did, my, you know, after the concert? No, I, I knew we'd go out again. We had made. And then by March of that year, we were talking about living together. By oh. August, we were living together. Wow. And then we didn't get engaged until, oh my goodness, fall or March of 2003. So about three years between engagement. We wanted to be sure about that. Of course. It's a big step. 24 years. Do you remember your first, uh, your first husband date? I do. Yes. He took okay. me to a Thai restaurant on Young Street. Uh, he ordered everything on the menu to impress me. <laughs> <laughs> I still make fun of him for that. Um, oh. And we took none of it to go. What um, time of year was it? It was summer. Okay. It was a beautiful Sounds summer like, okay. evening. Yeah. yeah, it was. Not a nice. crappy February, Sunday night. Which no, no, my, no. It was my anniversary. It was wonderful. Now, mm-hmm. people celebrate their uh, different anniversaries. But I'm going to bring this up. And I'm again, you know, this isn't throwing bombs here. I'd, I'd say the same thing. Oh, would you say this to his face? I kind of would if we were pals. Kevin Vaughn comes on the show and he's an independent MP. You're aware of who he is, Shiva? Of course. All right, great. He's done our think tank. He's in a couple of yep. segments. Yes. He's the MP for Spadina Fort York. And he posted this yesterday. And I just want to know if this is generational or not. But this is what he posted. And I don't want to take away from his uh, his enjoyment and happiness. Six months ago today, I married the love of my life. It's hard to believe it's already been half a year since we were married before God and with our family and friends. Sorry I couldn't be home to celebrate this milestone with you in person. And he tagged his, uh, his lovely wife, Elizabeth Fong. Here I go. Kevin, love you like a brother. We'll have to break bread at some point in time. It's not a milestone. You're six months in. Six months into a marriage. Okay, that's not a milestone. You don't celebrate six months of marriage. You stop counting months when you have a baby at a certain point. You don't take your your kid to junior kindergarten. They're like, what a nice boy. How old is he? 51 months. He's four. It's not a six month anniversary. That's not a thing. If it's a thing now for the younger generation, I'm cool with it. I just didn't know and I apologize, but it's not a thing for people born in the 70s. It's not a thing for the younger generation either. So look, I didn't, I didn't want to talk about this, but you insisted we I talk did. about this. Okay, so let's get into Why it. Not? Yes. So he it's- has posted this on Twitter. There are three beautiful pictures of their wedding. His wife is gorgeous. Elizabeth, you are stunning. And she looks beautiful on her wedding day. Yes, yes, um, yes. I yes. feel it's very performative. Kevin, oh my. we like having you on the show, but I feel it's very performative. Uh, it's uh, it's an ode to her. It's a it's a poem to her. And then it ends with, sorry, I couldn't be home to celebrate. Well, where are you? Well, he's where? in Ottawa, probably at the House of Commons. Yeah, true. She's in Toronto, probably, okay. and he's in Ottawa. That's my guess. I just think, what, you can't pick up the phone or send her a text with those messages? I don't think he's in, like, Sweden or the Philippines. I think he's in, I think he's, whole, I think he's in Ottawa. It's not that far. Yeah, he, but why, why post this? I just, I just... 
whenever couples do this online, I roll my eyes. It's I think it's performative. I think it's for the rest of the world to see uh, and not for the other person. Let, let's so you can make this unanimous, Gord Rennie. Is six months an, uh, an anniversary? It's not really an anniversary. You got to get to a year. Not you really. have to get there. He, has- he will. I don't have any doubts. Who has doubts? I don't. He, he'll get there, but but it's not till August. The, he had me for the first three quarters of that message. Oh, it's very sweet. I can't believe it's been six months. And then, I'm sorry, I couldn't make it was the uh, downfall. I oh, I thought it was the word milestone. No, it's the word milestone. Yeah. Well, it's, well. Well, maybe it's, it's just not a milestone. Hey, hey, hey. Maybe it's a milestone for Kevin. Uh, did he win a bet? Did somebody say you won't get to six months? Do you collect a bet now? Maybe. I will say my did, first did marriage didn't make tickets? it to that milestone. <laughs> <laughs> So for him, maybe uh, it's a milestone. Maybe it's a, a a record for him in a relationship. Two things I don't think are milestones. Uh, two things I don't think you I don't think you celebrate. One is is a six month wedding anniversary. The other is and I knew a guy once uh, who celebrated an engagement anniversary. That's also not a thing, Sheba. That's not if you get engaged on it's like a one July year tenth, and and the wedding is let's say fourteen months out. The next year on July tenth is not an engagement anniversary. That's not something. It okay, isn't. that's a person who doesn't want to get married, who doesn't want to set a wedding date, and that's why they're trying to prolong it by making her feel special by celebrating the engagement because you have no new desire to marry her. Or they work at Hallmark and they're trying to generate some revenue for the company. I think you there's no way you can't go into Shoppers Drug Mart or Rexall and buy an engagement anniversary card, which tells me it's not something. Am I nuts? 416-870-6400. Weigh in on either one of those if you can. We love going to the people on things like this. Is there such a thing as a six-month wedding anniversary? (laughs) No. And is there an engagement anniversary? I could be wrong. Maybe I'm wrong about one or even both. Uh, But I don't think it's something. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. April Engelberg joins us now. She's a lawyer in Toronto and has run for city council. And we love talking municipal issues with her. When I lay all that out, April, are you, I suppose, surprised by this? I I think uh, Chow had really drawn a line in the sand here and maybe thought we'd get some form of compromise. But uh, this looks like a win for the police. Good morning, Greg. Yes, I'm not too surprised here because I'm. I mean, I I know we're repeatedly told that the city is broke, but out of the police's budget, like twelve million dollars isn't that much of a difference because their budget is so massive. And then if that's what it comes down to, like keep peace between her and the police chief, I can see Olivia Chow kind of making that concession. So in the grand scheme, I don't think it's that big of a deal for Toronto's budget. Yeah, we'll see if we get uh, news later on today. I I saw this, and I'm glad you saw it too. Um, over the weekend, it was revealed that they've been tracking uh, these traffic agents. And if you walk in Toronto, even you know three or four o'clock in the afternoon, you're going to see that at major intersections, especially in the business district. And the concept seems to be putting traffic agents at major intersections um, is working, especially along the King Street Transit Priority Corridor. What's this say for for where we're going? And is this becoming is this going to become the norm in these major intersections, April? Definitely. So what's interesting is the King Street pilot, the whole idea is the streetcar is was incredibly slow when we first introduced the King Street pilot, where basically cars are forced to turn off the street every block so that the streetcars can fly through. Um, and at the time, pretty much you could walk as fast as the King streetcar. Like it was such a failure. And you also decide not only was it slow, it was so incredibly packed that you would have to wait for like five streetcars in order to board. Um, what happened is we basically let the King streetcar just like fall apart due to lack of enforcement and upkeep. And it had become... <clears throat> 
like three times slower to to be on the King Streetcar um, than it had been when the pilot was actually working. And turns out all we needed was these traffic enforcers at the big intersections. So like at King and Young, at King and uh, University, et cetera, because even though cars aren't supposed to go through the intersection, they do go through the intersection and there was no consequences whatsoever for the most part. The, the big problem was cars left. stopping at those red lights, wasn't it? And then it just snarls everything up when cars are stuck in an intersection and traffic's meant to go through them and it can't go anywhere. And then you're just, you've got, that's the definition of gridlock, April. Exactly. So what they found is the traffic wardens speed it up. Um, so it's one third of the time otherwise. Um, so I think that's great. I will say, I know that, that what their, uh, their measurements are, like when the traffic wardens are working, I can say from my own experience, the traffic wardens are not always there. I've still seen some disasters. So we need to make sure the traffic wardens are there throughout more hours, including like Friday, Saturday nights, for example, when King Street is very busy. Um, so it's definitely a step in the right direction and they're asking for more traffic wardens and I definitely support it. It's just a very easy fix to get people moving. Let's, uh, let's stay with, with, uh, traffic and getting from point A to B in a hurry. Um, the idea of bus lanes, bus only corridors Mm -hmm. to speed commutes. A lot of city council members are on board with it, but I have heard councillors say, but I don't want them being utilized during rush hour. It will it will jam things up. I always use an example on the DVP. There's a spot coming from the 404 and coming from the 401 going uh, west where, uh, you know, one of those go buses or, or can go past you, but then they just sit there. Like you, they, they've got about a you know an 800-meter run of things, but then they're just going to sit there and block other cars out. How do we make this work so people can get there faster? Okay, great question. I, I'm interested to see that spot you're talking about, but... Basically, it's called rapid TO, and the idea is that a bus should have priority over cars, right? So there are certain streets where the buses are just incredibly brutal, incredibly overpacked. You have, you can't get on the bus. Once you're on the bus, the bus isn't moving. A good example is Dufferin, the 29 bus, which they like to call the Suffering Dufferin. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> this was announced, I think, three or four years ago at this point we're supposed to have rapid bus lanes. In other words, there's lanes that are just for buses, or at least during certain hours, the lanes are just for buses, but we don't, and I was so excited and um, spoke favorably of them at the time, but we still don't have them. And even now, like they're wanting to speed up one of them, but it's like, oh, well, we need to spend three years consulting. So actually there's this advocacy group called uh, TTC Riders, and like basically as a form of protest, they just installed it themselves at one point. They just like took some spray paint or maybe chalk and mm-hmm. just made a bus lane just to show like, yeah, okay, this took us all morning and it's taken you four years. Like how do we, how does it take three or four years to make a bus lane? Um, and I agree with them in this case. Like if this is our plan to speed up uh, people's commutes, it, yeah. there's really no reason why nothing has happened. Um Got some time left to ask about the library. Things are getting close to normal. There was a massive cyber attack, even going back uh, late October, early November, and we're just starting to have all the services triple, trickle back, but we're not there yet, are we? No, so we're definitely not there. I, I, for example, have been feeling the consequences of the library. So the way that it normally works is you have your account online, and any book that you want, you you know, like in advance, you put it on hold, and you can do that for new releases or whatever, and it's normally 
so good. Like I'll put a book on hold. It'll be at my local branch within a couple of days um, and you go get it. But that hasn't been working. Well, I just got an email yesterday that they're starting to restock the shelves because the shelves have been nearly empty, but we still can't access our account. So anything that somebody put on hold in like September or October, such as me, we're going to be getting emails soon that you can pick up your book. But if you haven't put something on hold uh, months ago, uh, you still can't uh, get your books and you still can't access your account. So it's taking a while. It's quite alarming just like how bad the cyber attack was, that that's how much it affected our systems. It's not really a good sign for other ones, but... At least it's progress. Yeah, it's, a, it's it's exasperating. It seems terribly difficult to get it all back up and running. Um, but the city has said so little about the intensity of the attack. And I get why, because then you risk it happening again or risk a, a copycat. i got to leave it there, April. Thanks so much. Thanks, Guy. Have a good day. April Engelberg joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. One of the more popular um, provincial MPPs and a cabinet minister of that at that, Monty McNaughton, chose to leave politics back in the fall. He's now working for Woodbine Entertainment. So it leaves an open seat in Queen's Park in the legislature and someone putting her name forward to seek that seat, joins us now on the line. She got the nod from Bonnie Crombie over the weekend, the Ontario Liberal leader, and we're happy to welcome on the mayor of Lucan. She is Kathy Burkhart-Jessen. It's great to have you on the program. Thanks for doing this. Well, great. Good to be with you this morning, Greg. Thanks. You and I, you don't have to remember this, but you and I talked four or five years ago when I was doing a different radio thing and you were having hockey day in Lucan with the Leafs and Senators there. And I'm like, wow, what an event. And what a Lucan. I'm an Ilderton kid, right? So uh, we we weren't supposed to always like the Lucan kids at high school, at Medway High School. But uh, you, you, you had a great event and now you're looking for something different. What's the motivation for you here? Well, before I get into that, I do remember that interview because I, well, because I was, I was, I spoke to many media that day and you were the only one that had a local connection. So could understand the excitement in our community. So yeah. I do remember that. So you're, and you're, my, the, you're the Ontario liberal candidate for Lambton, I, Kent, Middlesex. I am. And I'm excited to be so, I mean, the motivation for me is I have had the great privilege of serving my community of Luke and Badolph in the County of Middlesex since 2010. And um, during that time, um, I have gained experience. I've built relationships and I really um, love what I do. And I want to take it to a higher level. The last few years, I have heard from residents, not only in my area, but um, more broadly, southwestern Ontario, and I and I would say across the province about the concern how this government is governing, and I see opportunity to really make some changes. I mentioned uh, Monty, um, and I think Monty's got some integrity to his name. Um, this is certainly a loss for the progressive conservatives, but this was a very popular MPP. Do you look and say he got 58.8% of the vote last time out in 2022, but do you look and say with Monty gone, it's a very wide open election potentially now? Well, absolutely it is. And, and you know, absolutely, there's no question Monty has a great reputation. I worked very well with him. I have the greatest respect for him, but he's not there anymore. And I don't know what the reason is for that. Um, and so with a new leadership, with a new vision, with a party that is rebuilding and then a party that is governing, that is losing uh, 
attraction in our in southwestern Ontario, in my area particularly, our residents don't see themselves represented in this government. I really see that this is prime opportunity uh, for the Liberals to to regain a seat that they had control of for many years. Uh, it's really interesting to talk to mayors, and we had um, we've had many mayors on in the last few weeks because I would make the case, Kathy, that they they speak to people more like their people, like there's less talking mm-hmm. points, there's less sound bites, and and they see really things at the eye level. They take phone calls and they go have lunch and coffee with concerned mm-hmm. citizens. What are those issues in a small town like Lucan right now, and has it changed a little bit from when you started? Well, it, it definitely has changed. There's no question. We are a changing municipality, and small-town rural Ontario is changing. Um, if I speak with my Luke and Badoff hat on, we are the sixth fastest-growing community in the province. And so we have a changing demographic that is moving out to rural and small town on Ontario with different expectations. The needs um, of our residents have changed. And so, yes, those conversations have changed. You know, we need um, investment in infrastructure. We need to make sure that rural health care is there. Our residents don't want to travel anymore to to the Londons, to, you know, the the larger centers um, that surround um, our our communities for health care. They want to make sure that their doctor, um, they can see their doctor in their community, Uh, rural schools. You know, we have we have a demographic moving in that isn't used to busing, so they don't want to have to travel to, for education. We need investments in our school. Um, it's those sort of things that uh, certainly the conversations in the line at the food land, uh, in the, mm. you know, standing in the hockey arena. It's those conversations that I hear daily uh, and that have changed. Kathy Burkhart, Jessen's our guest, uh, mayor of uh, the small town of Lucan, just outside London, Ontario. What inspires you about Bonnie Crombie? Well, you know, she's fresh um, and she's energetic. And I really think um, getting to know her and meeting her like I have the last few months um, as I've been contemplating this decision, you know, she wants to hear from the residents. She wants to get out there and she wants to know what it is that Ontarians are missing and lacking in this government. And um, that's different from me, uh, for me um, than I've seen and I've experienced with other provincial leaders. I really believe that she is committed to the grassroots to um, and to de- delivering uh, to the residents of Ontario. Now, is there any drag on the notion that right now, at the minimum, um, I think we could make the case the Trudeau government is suffering some bouts of, of, of lack of popularity right now? That's what the polls say. Is that an important distinction to make to say, this is me, you know me in my community, you know that we're, we've got a, a, you know, we've, we've got different legislation, we've got different agendas at the provincial government level? Well, it is something that we're going to have to work on. I, I, I mean, I you know, would be naive and I would be um, not telling you something that we haven't discussed as we've, you know, contemplated the strategy for this campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's always the case. Um, it is always making sure that the voter knows that this is a provincial campaign and um, having to separate the two, uh, that will just be part of the strategy. Kathy, I wish you the best. And I, I know we'll stay in touch leading up to the by-election. Thanks very much for this this morning. Well, that's great. It's been great talking to you, um, Greg. And if you ever get back in my area, I'm happy to give you a tour. <laughs> Our town has changed, let me tell you. I bet. Hey, I scored a big goal in that arena once, just the one. Uh, and we lost a lot more than we won coming from Ilderton. But uh, well, but I, I always remember here. that arena very, very well. That's great. Thanks Thank for the time.
Bye-bye. That's Kathy Burkhardt-Jessen. Uh, again, that's not very easy um, for the job right now. The Liberals have had a tough time in the polls, but there's a I know her and it's a very winnable seat potentially. It's a very wide open seat in Lambton, Kent, Middlesex. And though, yeah, it's outside the lens of Toronto. I think she's kind of emphasizing those small town issues. When we talked to the mayor of Belleville last week, Belleville's not in the GTA, but similar issues happening on uh, all those particular streets. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Big news yesterday, obviously, uh, with Bill 124 being ruled as unconstitutional. Bill 124 capped wages for public support workers in education, in health care, and it was a massive storyline during most of the pandemic. And the Ford government decided... For once, okay, we'll take the L here. They did appeal the first time around, but they're basically not going to appeal the appeal. And there's a lot of back pay coming, billions of dollars worth, taxpayer dollars as well. And it's going to come to a lot of these workers. Michael Hurley is the uh, is a local president of QP and joins us now on Toronto Today. Michael, thanks for making the time for us. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Um, what does this mean for the average um, QP employee? What, how will, and how will they get their money? Well, I mean, many of these, uh, when Bill uh, 124 was struck down in November of 2022 by by the first court, um, you know, uh, many people uh, triggered wage reopeners. They had negotiated and achieved wage increases. What was really in question at this point was whether those would then be clawed back um, or, or, or what would happen. There was a lot of uncertainty about that. Uh, so, you know, that the Court of Appeal has upheld this decision means that um, increases that have been negotiated uh, will stay in place. Uh, bear in mind that those increases, uh, you know, didn't didn't uh, by any means meet uh, the surge of inflation that we saw over that period. But they but they were greater than the one percent that the conservatives had uh, legislated. Michael Hurley is our guest, first VP of QP Ontario. He's also a member of QP's National Executive Board. How many? Tell me a story about losing somebody from healthcare. Maybe somebody else in the union you know who just said, "I can't do the work on what I'm getting paid. I'm going to find another industry." Like the industry lost some good people over this span because of Bill 124. I'm sure of it. And you probably are even more sure. Well, our, you know, our our polling of our own members shows, uh, you know, a high degree of exhaustion, physical, and particularly mental exhaustion. Um, you know, a high degree of sadness, of um, dreading going to work. Um, you know, uh, in the hospitals, for example, we have the fewest staff and beds of any province in the country, and the workloads are are terrible. And people have this um, moral uh, issue uh, that they cannot deliver the quality of care that they think the patients deserve or they were trained to provide, and. As it gets worse and worse, uh, you know, um, you know, many people leave. And one of the things that would incentivize them to stay would be wage increases. But what happened simultaneously uh, over the last three years was uh, the introduction of legislation that capped their wages at one percent and then inflation soared to seven percent. Yeah. So you've got people leaving to take a job, for example, as a person who takes the chickens, like as a nurse, leaving as a nurse to go work at Costco to be a person who takes the chickens out of the rotisserie because you make more money there and you work Monday to Friday and you have none of the stress of Mm. 
an angst of seeing people suffer and not feeling like you can you can you can really help them the way they should be. We just had a massive announcement Friday uh, with Prime Minister Trudeau and Premier Ford and an awful lot of money, billions worth to invest into public health care in Ontario. Do you have a level of confidence that that money can be utilized the right way? Well, I mean, obviously, it's 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 great that there's uh, you know a step up uh, here, but when you look at the at the needs uh, to uh, you know recruit people into the healthcare sector, not just in hospitals but in long term care and home care, you know, uh, retirement homes where the wages are lower and uh, you know there there's a tremendously high rate of attrition, like about twelve percent people leaving a year. What we'd expect to see from the federal government and haven't seen yet is putting, uh, you know, recruitment on a war footing. It's like saying, OK, like yeah. we'll pay to, to send you to college, like we'll give you, you know, you just stay in Ontario and we'll cover your tuition and we'll give you a stipend. And we need tens of thousands of nurses and other workers into this healthcare system. And we're going to do whatever it takes to meet the needs of an aging and growing population. We haven't seen that level of uh, commitment yet from the federal or provincial government. And that's what we need to see to deal with the human resource crisis. Michael Hurley's joining us from uh, QP on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. One question I'm fascinated to ask you, QP is the largest union in Canada, almost almost 750,000 members. And I'll buy. Absolutely. I hear from from people all the time, grateful to the union for fighting for not just not just healthcare workers, Michael, but patients, teachers and the like. What I hear from some QP members is they don't want QP necessarily involved in politics. And, and, And a lot of members of QP are involved in politics and they've got their opinions. Is there a balancing act? Is there a market correction that you hear from union workers that say, we want you to fight for our wages. We want you to fight for our contracts. We don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be talking about the Middle East. We don't want to be talking about things like that. Do you hear that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this tension exists, you know, um, People, you know, some people would like the union, the unions to focus uh, exclusively on economic issues. I mean, the problem is that those economic issues occur, uh, don't occur in a vacuum. They occur in a political context, not just in Ontario and in Canada, but globally. And, you know, uh, uh, the conditions for workers, like, for example, in Ontario, are shared irrespective of which union you're in. And there is, a, you know, there is a, um, uh, a political uh, uh, you know, issue that, that cuts across working people, really. And uh, in order to advance their interests, you need to talk about politics. And that also extends, I would say, globally. But for sure, this is a tension within the union movement and, and uh and in, in the in the working class, and, and conversations are like these civilized discourse conversations are important there. But I would bet you there's a lot of people listening agreeing exactly with what you said, and there's some people saying there's nothing that happens in Gaza, nothing that happens in between Israel and Hamas that should affect um, our public our public stance on what we do here. I you know I would say like I you know I haven't I haven't been outspoken on that conflict, but I, would I agree say you haven't. Yeah, as as a hospital worker, I'm. I'm horrified by what's happening uh, to health facilities in in Gaza, and you know, uh, I I I think that we have an obligation as healthcare workers 
you know, uh, you know, to draw attention to that and to say that we we believe that that has to stop. I mean, I I, I think that would be uh, like you can't have compassion just for people at the bedside. You can't have compassion just for Ontarians. You have to have compassion for people who live in other countries. Right. And mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I, I would say but it's highly political and, and people are afraid to say anything because they're afraid they'll get into deep political trouble. I mean, that is the honest truth. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, I hear yeah. it. Let, I, I, I'm out of time, but I hope we can keep having more conversations about uh, the issues. Well, and, and again, for what the union does um, is really important. And, and this was a victory yesterday and, and you fought for it for months on end. I appreciate Thank you coming on today. Oh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very uh, much. Michael Hurley is president of QP.